It's my profound privilege to introduce my good, good friend, Jared Cleaver, who's going to be preaching and bringing the Word of God today. Jared has been on staff as the college director and pastor at Christ Community Church, a church that we love uh, and are partnering with to plant City Light Exarbon. And uh, Jared's been on their staff for five years. He also was a part of the ministry as an intern when Gavin was leading the ministry. And so you've known him for over a decade. We've been friends for over a decade. And uh, other than being a a pastor, preacher, um, leader in our city, uh, Jared for a season was a hair model. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Something that we're still working through in our personal relationship. Um, We're going to get there. And uh, Jared did a great job preaching. I'm excited. He's got a great word for our church. Uh, Jared is also a husband and father, and so I think we have a photo of his family. Can we get that? Or just my side profile, one of the two. Jared, uh, this is your wife, Carrie, your three kids. Um, His oldest is 11 months, 10 months, and 9 months. I don't know how it's possible, but they figure out a way to do it. He's got three small children. All under the age at one point of like two. At one point, I don't even Something know. It like was an, I don't even know how it's mathematically possible, but you did it, and it's a hot mess. And so just the fact that Jared has a shirt on that's ironed is praise be the Lord, okay? And so uh, let me pray for you, Jared. Excited to have you preach this word. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for this day, and uh, we thank you that we get to sit underneath the teaching of your word. Uh, we thank you specifically for what you've done in Jared's life, the way you spoke to him over the last couple of weeks as he prepared this message and put it in his heart and uh, allowed us to experience the person and work of Jesus in and through your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Jared, for preaching. Can you give it up for this guy one more time? Hey, thanks. Chris, uh, I appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I just want to say thank you to your church uh, just for your generosity and letting me be a part of, of the story that God is writing, and for your heart for our city and planting churches all over the city, and, and the heart to see lost people be found, your heart for church planting. It's allowing uh, Andrew and I and, and our families to be able to do what you've called us into, and as I look out, I can see some people on our core team that are coming with us to City Light Exarbon. It's kind of a, a cool thing to be here with you guys this morning. So thank you uh, so much for, for uh, just allowing me to be a part of this story that God is writing. Okay, so today, as you heard before, we're jumping into John 2. You guys ready to dive in? Okay, so let's, let's do this. Let's do this. So John 2, we're going to pick up where Gavin left off uh, last week. Open up your Bibles. But before we do, let me ask you a, a quick question here. Have you ever had a friend who um, you thought was acting normal, totally cool, whatever, and then you got into another social setting and say maybe your friend uh, started making all these awkward political jokes in a group of people, and you're like, no, 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 that's going to offend people. And you're like, stop, stop. Or say you have a, a, a meek and mild and passive friend. They're all quiet, and then you hop in a car with them, and they're behind the wheel of a car, and they turn, a, turn into a road rage maniac. You get on the interstate, and they're honking at people. They're yelling at people. That weird awkwardness when you realize, oh, what, what's going on here? That's a little bit of the tension that we're going to feel in this story today. So you remember last week, um, in John, at the beginning of John 2, Gavin talked to us about Jesus coming on the scene at the wedding at Cana, and he kind of came behind the scenes. He quietly came on as a savior. Remember, they ran out of wine at this wedding party, and so Jesus saved the shame of the family who was throwing the party. He turned water into wine, and so it's this fun, feel-good story that tells us something about Jesus, and, and just when we think, kind of, we know how Jesus operates, and the disciples think, okay, this is the MO of Jesus. I get this. I got this. Then we come to 2.13, and this story, and we see a different side of Jesus. It's not your mild-mannered Jesus here. 
He goes big. He goes intense. He kind of goes crazy on some people. And it leaves us scratching our heads saying, okay, what just happened? Like, what's he doing here? What's going on? You see, Jesus is on a mission. He has a purpose. He knows where he's going and he knows what he's doing and he'll do whatever he can to get there. Some of you can probably relate. Some of you maybe have have trained for a race, maybe a marathon before. And you realize when you decide to do that, you have to forsake eating all good tasting food, right? And you have to eat only healthy food. And then you have to run like dozens of miles a week in order to do this. And your friends think you're crazy, but you just do it anyway because you're running for the prize at the end, right? Or uh, maybe some of you have entered into a crazy uh, graduate program. Maybe you're aiming to be a doctor and you realize that in order to do this, you have to crawl into a cave and do like 200 hours of homework a week. And your friends and your family forget your name. They don't know you and you have to do it because that's what it takes, right? Well, I have a story kind of like this. And since most of you don't know me, I'll I'll share it with you. It'll, It'll help you learn a little bit about me. So a few years back, I was, um, I think I was 29 years old at the time, and I was a single man on the lookout for a girl. Now, um, I had tried to solve this problem on my own, and I didn't quite succeed. I failed over and over, right? And so there was a nice man in my church uh, who I saw here this morning, um, but there was a nice man who, who came and intervened, and, and he, he set me up on a blind date with his stepdaughter, okay? And um, she lived in Texas at the time. I lived in here in Omaha, Nebraska at the time. And to make a really long story semi-short, what happened is we met on a blind date at Starbucks uh, six years ago, I believe it was, uh, for this coffee blind, romantic blind date on Christmas Eve. We met together. I sat down at the table. We started talking. And I looked across the table and I thought, this may be my last chance. I... I <laughs> I have got to make this one count. And so I'm looking at her and I'm like, okay, she loves Jesus. She's beautiful. She, she has some personality. She's, she's fun loving. I, I got to make this one count. And so I did what any normal person would do. And I stalked her. I, I stalked her for the next couple months. I'm, I'm running after this girl. I'm texting her every day. I'm calling her basically every day. I'm doing weird things like I'm leaving my friends to hang out on the weekend so I could drive back to my apartment, sit there by myself, and call her on the phone for a couple hours. This is just what I did at the time. Now, a couple months after I met her, a little less actually, came Valentine's Day. And, and this is what I did for Valentine's Day because I knew there was, there was something at stake here. And so I went to this art store for the first time, never been back. I, I, I went to this art store and I, and I bought this book that you can like assemble yourself. I got this book and I wrote out our seven and a half week long love story in the form of a children's story and then drew like drawings. They're kind of like stick figures and illustrations. I'm terrible at drawing, but I drew these drawings, colored them in. And since we were living three states apart, I had this videographer friend who I said, hey, can you come and and film me reading this story? So he captured me reading this story on camera. and, And then I sent her the file on Valentine's Day and she opened it up and she loved it. Of course she did. But I got, a, I got a little warning for the fellas out here. When you go big at the beginning for the first holiday ever, you're never going to top it. So every gift after that for the rest of your life is going to be a disappointment. So just so you know, that's kind of how that works. Um, anyway, 
Um, what happened after that is I continued to stalk her. I flew out to see her in Texas, and, um, and one thing led to another, and I told her a, little, a few weeks after Valentine's Day, actually, that, um, that I was going to quit my job here in Omaha, and I was going to move to Texas, and I actually did it. I moved to Texas in June. We hung out, bought her a ring, got married, and you saw the picture. That's what's happening now. We completed mission. <laughs> For any small reason, all these uh, kind of crazy extreme actions don't really seem to make sense. But when there's a a future spouse at stake, when there's true love at stake, it it all of a sudden frames up a little bit differently, right? Like everything moves out of the way and and you go crazy. In this this case, I I had this single-minded mission to pursue one thing, and my one mission was to bring me and to bring Carrie together. And in this passage, you're going to see that Jesus has a single-minded mission in the same way to bring God and to bring people together. And he will do whatever it takes. He will go to all lengths. He will, do, uh, he will clear any path so that people will be united in a relationship with God and we'll be worshiping him fully. So if you're here this morning, if we're here this morning, Jesus has a goal for us as we're looking at this text, and that is that we will be united with God and that we will be able to worship him wholeheartedly. And now we're going to see this play out in the text in two different ways. First, you're going to see Jesus' passion. You're going to see his, his passion come out of him for the single-minded mission. And then you're going to see, um, you're going to see Jesus' solution. Uh, what he does to, to make the wrongs right, to make this happen. And, and City Light, here's why this matters. When you see Jesus, uh, you know, angrily flipping tables over, it's not just an angry guy with a short fuse that we're looking at, but rather we're seeing Jesus' extreme passion for his Father's glory. That people would love him and worship him. And you're seeing an extreme passion that there would be no barrier in the way between connecting the heart of God with the heart of men and women everywhere. And as we study this wild scene, you'll see a picture of Jesus' love for you and the reality that, that Jesus would love nothing more than for you to be in, a, be in a worshiping relationship with Jesus where you can experience the joy that comes from that. So we're going to hop into our text Um, We're going to start in verse 13, read the first couple verses here. So uh, read along with me. On verse 13, John says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Now, before Jesus goes crazy on this people, I think it's helpful to set the scene here so we can tell what's going on. So um, in this time, it was Passover in Jerusalem. Passover was this huge religious festival, and it drew people, masses of people uh, from all uh, areas uh, around Jerusalem, and they all came there. And so the city during this time, it swelled in size. It got much bigger, and it was just a hopping place to be. It's kind of a, a, a good comparison today. In Houston, Texas, the Super Bowl is happening, right? And there are thousands upon thousands of people that have descended on the city. They're flocking there for one thing, this, this big game, and, and the culminating thing will take place at NRG Stadium tonight. There's going to be this Super Bowl game that takes place, and that's where all the action is going to happen. Now, in those days, the temple was kind of the NRG Stadium, if you will. 
Because the temple was not just a, a building where people came on Sundays, but it was the center uh, for government. It was the center for law, and it was the center for religious activity in those days. And so everyone was, was coming on this place, and, and this place was hopping. And so our specific story today takes place in the outer courts of the temple. There are these outer courts where, where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, came to worship. Now, in the inner courts is where the Jews would come to worship, a court where women would come to worship and men would come to worship, and they would um, offer up sacrifices. The priests would offer up sacrifices for them. They would be cleansed of their sins. And at the very inner, inner uh, place of the temple, the inner court of the temple, was a place called the Holy of Holies. Maybe you've heard that term before. It was where the very presence of God dwelled. That's the inner part of the temple, and this takes place in the outer courts, where these Gentiles would come to worship. They would come there to pray. They would come there to connect with God. Now, the priests and the temple authorities, these Jewish leaders that were there, they were supposed to honor God. They were supposed to ensure that this process could happen. Yet in this scene, what do we find? We don't find worship. We don't find contemplative prayer. We don't find people connecting with God. We find a busy marketplace. We find uh, loud animals. We find money changers doing business. It's this crazy hustle and bustle that's happening. It's kind of like if you've ever been down to TD Ameritrade Park for the College World Series, during the year, if you walk around the stadium, it's kind of dead. Kind of just nothing is there. It's quiet. But then during those two weeks, when that happens, you go there and it's just this hustle and bustle, chaos, craziness. And in a similar way during Passover, that's how the outer courts of these temples kind of blew up with activity, with vendors, with all these people around. Now, before we go too far and think that these guys uh, were just uh, selling anything, there was no point for what the business was going on. That's not actually true. These guys were not selling Moses jerseys and Elijah jerseys outside of the temple. They weren't wearing Team Yah or selling Team Yahweh hats. That's not what they were doing. They actually had a purpose for being there because people would take an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, for Passover, and they would need to bring a, an animal for a sacrifice. So it was highly inconvenient to grab a sheep or to grab a pigeon and walk down the dusty road 30 miles till you got to the temple. So instead, there was people who were selling animals. So when you got there, you could actually purchase an animal for sacrifice. In the same way, these money changers who were there, uh, they weren't just trying to to make a cheap buck, but they actually served a purpose because Jewish males all paid an annual temple tax, but the temple tax had to be paid with a certain kind of coin. It's kind of like when you go to Chuck E. Cheese and your quarters don't work in the games, you have to get a Chuck E. Cheese coin, right? And so these these temple uh, money cha- or these money changers who were in the temple were, had these temple Chuck E. Cheese coins that they were giving to the people that they could pay the temple tax with, and it was all good. So you get the scene. You picture the chaos, the hustle and bustle. Now let's see what Jesus, or how Jesus reacts to this. So the next verse, verse 15, it says... And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples at this moment are sitting there thinking, whoa, 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 what happened to calm and nice wedding party, Jesus? I thought thought we were on the same page here. We were going to be nice and orderly. We were going to kind of in the background and make this happen in a kind way. Well, City Light, let me tell you this. If you follow Jesus, it's not always going to be nice and orderly. 
He's going to throw you some curveballs. It's not all about uh, boring potlucks and church basements. It's an exciting life. And Jesus is going to do some work. He's going to throw some curveballs. He's going to make some wine at a dinner party. And and he's going to flip some tables at a temple. So we've got to be ready for what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus is here. He gets fairly angry in this scene because, think about this, in Jesus' mind, if there is one place where people should be worshiping God, it's in the temple. And if there's one group of people that should be helping and aiding this process of worship, it should be the Jewish leaders. It should be the temple priests. Now, it's suspected that that these Jewish leaders could have even been getting a cut of the money that was being made in these outer courts, which makes the whole situation worse. But you see, in this moment, Jesus loses it. He freaks out. He flips over temples. He takes these uh, boxes and dumps out the, the money changers' coins. And, and he freaks out. He makes a whip of cords, and he whips these animals to get them out of the temple courts. You see, in this moment, Jesus' passion in the form of anger. Now, I have to think many of us are sitting here and thinking, okay, wait, how, how does this relate to me? Like, I'm not—I don't work in a temple— I don't exchange Chuck E. Cheese coins. I don't sell pigeons or sheep. Like, how does this really matter to me? We see at the heart of Jesus' anger is this. It's God's people perverting God's worship for personal gain. It's God's people perverting God's worship for personal gain. They were using this place to not give glory to the Father, but to take advantage of people, to line their own pockets. And not, they were not doing anything to worship God, but, but rather they were turning this into a marketplace for gain. And I think that we can do the same thing as these guys were doing. I know that I'm guilty. Okay, so picture this. Picture that you're, <clears throat> you're sitting around in, a, in your city group, and you're talking, everyone's having a conversation. The conversation turns spiritual, and people are talking about what they're reading in the Bible. And you realize, oh, I'm actually not reading my Bible right now. But it kind of becomes your turn, and you start talking about what you're reading in the Bible and talking about how great it is. And then they're, they're talking about uh, what God is doing in their lives and how, people are, or how God is using them. And you're like, oh. Uh, and you just start making something up. Well, God is doing this, and, and I think he's using me to do this. And, and you're like literally just making things up on the spot. Of course, you're not telling the truth to your friends, but, but you see this group discussion that was made to, to encourage one another, to point people to Jesus. You're taking this and you're hijacking it for your own personal gain to make yourself look better. What about taking a leadership role in a church? Like for some of you that lead uh, city groups, maybe some of you that come up here and you lead worship on Sunday mornings, maybe people who, who lead a, you, you help lead a ministry here at the church. But you do all of that not with the intent of leading people, of pointing people to Jesus, but you do it so that people look at you and are impressed by you. So, so they look at you and say, wow, they got talent, or, or they're mature, they're successful, they must have really arrived spiritually. And what you do in that moment is you take something that very simply should be using your gifts for God's glory and you twist it into something that's a power play for your own personal promotion. The scary thing for uh, someone like me, and I, as I think about this verse and I think about hypocrisy, is that I know, uh, being someone who maybe stands up and talks and, and, and has a pastor role, that that my hypocrisy doesn't just affect me, it affects other people. 
There could be dozens, maybe hundreds of people that are affected by this. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders were doing in this story. That's what they were guilty of. And so as I've wrestled with this text and, and thought about this new church that we're planting, City Light Exarban, I have to answer questions like, okay, am I really doing this? Am I doing this for my name and for my fame? Or am I doing this for the fame and the name of Jesus Christ? And I have to ask a question like, am I all about building this big, exciting uh, thing that people are going to think is impressive? Or am, does my heart break for lost people in Exarban to come to know Jesus? I've got to ask, man, am, am I just doing church planting because it's cool and it's exciting and it's what people want to do? Or is it the actual call of God on my life? Hypocrisy is dangerous. This text is a very real warning to all of us, and it's haunting me as I'm thinking about some of this stuff in a good way because it's a text I need to come back to over and over and over to check my motives. We can take something that's supposed to be about God and make it be about us. So verse 17, the next verse in this text, I'm going to read it. John says, His disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, after the disciples saw Jesus go crazy at this scene, after he flipped over these tables, a light bulb went on in their heads, and they thought back, they thought back to Psalm 69, 9. Their minds were reminded where where David wrote this psalm, where he had this extreme passion, he was consumed that his people would know God, that they would worship God. And they realized, these disciples, that in this moment, Jesus was championing the same same passage. He he had this passion that people would be uh, consumed with God, that they would come to worship him. This is what Jesus' life was about. That was a single-minded mission, being passionate to connect people in worship to God. And what makes this scene so terrible is, is that the very people that were supposed to be aiding the process were actually inhibiting people, prohibiting people from doing that. <clears throat> Jesus could not stand that people were distracting people from worship for their own personal gain. And I think if you're a Christian here in the room today, we all need to stop for a second and pause and just examine our own heart and just say, okay, for real, am I using God Am I using the church? Am I using a a ministry for my own personal gain? Have I twisted it and made it not about Jesus, but really about me? And if God is convicting you, uh, we need to repent. We need to get on our knees and, and turn back to Jesus with this. You know, as we as we process this whole story, we come up to this this passionate anger. We're like, okay, what? Like, what do we really do with that? But I think um, the reason that we can be okay with Jesus getting angry in this scene is because he is defending what he loves. Much like I defend my kids ferociously because I love them. I will protect them. I will get aggressive. I will get angry if I have to. That is what Jesus is doing in this scene. He's fighting for the greatest good. He's making wrong things right. He's fixing the broken things of the world and making them new. He's taking darkened, dead hearts and he's making them alive. He's taking hell-bound sinners and making them into heaven-bound saints. You see, if Jesus didn't have this passion, we wouldn't be here right now. None of us. Jesus' anger is a good thing. His passion is a great thing. 
as we look at this story, I think there's, there's one more group of people that some of you might be able to connect with, and that's the Gentiles who are essentially being manipulated in this situation. Because I have a feeling with a room this size that, that there's probably a number of you um, who have been hurt by the church. There's probably a number of you who there have been spiritual leaders or authorities over you, and you have been controlled, you've been manipulated, you've been abused, you've been bullied in some way by these spiritual leaders. And I just want to say that is not okay. And Jesus says that is not okay. And the beauty of Jesus in this scene is that he is your angry defender. He's defending you from hypocrites, just like Jesus was defending the Gentiles in this scene from the Jewish leader hypocrites. He hates the abuse that has been done to you. He does not tolerate it. And he will fight. He will flip over tables. He will whip whatever he has to in order to come onto the scene to rescue you as your Savior. And this story is a reminder that he hasn't forgotten you. God has given you this story to remind you that Jesus is still defending you day after day after day. So you're like, this is our Jesus. He loves us. He loves you and I enough to make a scene. He loves you and I enough to get angry and not let us settle for anything but a real connection with him. Point one is Jesus' passion. Point two is Jesus' solution. So verse 18 We're going to read the next couple of verses. Read these with me. It says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, after Jesus causes this major scene of chaos right here, these Jewish authorities are like, Whoa, whoa, what what are you doing? Like, where do you get up? How do you think that you have the right to do that? Show us, show us some credentials. Like, like, show us your authority that you have to do that. Now, in those days, they would assume somebody who was disrupting the temple probably thought that they were some sort of prophet. And so they kind of cornered him by saying, okay, give us a sign. Show us some sort of miracle to prove that, that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus speaks in some words that they don't really understand. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they, they hear this and they're like, okay, I, I don't really know. They're, they're probably outraged, maybe shocked, they're maybe confused, like, okay, I don't, I don't get it, because there's no way that you could take what we built for 46 years with thousands of people, and now you're going to rebuild that in three days? And they're probably also thinking, okay, wait, you said destroy, we're not going to, we are not going to destroy our temple. But Jesus talking in somewhat cryptic language here is talking about a different kind of temple. In verse 21, it says that he's talking about the temple of his body. He says that their hypocrisy was eventually going to kill him to destroy that temple. And that's exactly what happened, right? If you fast forward to the crucifixion story, what happened? The hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders put him to death on the cross. He predicted it rightly. You know, verse 17 that we read earlier, it says that zeal for his father's house consumed him. So that means the same zeal that consumed him 
for, for flipping over tables at this Passover scene was, was the same zeal that consumed him to take all of the steps all the way to the cross where he would die for us, where he, where he would suffer the, suffer the penalty for our sins, where he would hang in our place. It consumed him so much that it destroyed his body. But then three days later, he rose, and a new temple was built. Jesus was the new temple. He created a new way to relate to God. You see, this new temple, is, it's a picture of the gospel, really. Jesus says, no more temple in Jerusalem with sacrifices. You know what? I'm the new temple. And you don't have to do that sacrifice anymore. I am the last and ultimate sacrifice that has paid for all of your sins. And, and no more annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. No, no, no. Now, if you believe in me, I'm going to come and I'm going to live inside of you. You don't have to come to the temple to worship. You can worship in spirit and truth right where you're at. I will come inside you and I will never leave or forsake you. And he says, no more priests who might rip you off or who might manipulate you. I will be the middleman between God and you. I will now be your priest. And he's saying, no more separation between the court of the Jews and the Gentiles. There is one location, Jesus says, and that one location of worship, there's one direction of worship, that's toward me. I'm the new temple, worship me. Isn't that good news for us? That's good news, especially for people who have suffered at the hands of of manipulative hypocrites who have been spiritual leaders in their life because you don't have to go to them. You are not subject to those hypocrites, but rather you can go directly to God, directly to your Savior through Jesus. You know, at at City Light here, we obviously love the local church, and we would love for you to submit to the leadership of of the local church, but true church leaders will ultimately point you to submit to the leadership of Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ is our true leader, our true priest, and he's our new temple. So there's one more verse that I want to read here. It's the last verse in our section, verse 22. John, the author, uh, comments that Jesus' disciples had a second light bulb moment. And this light bulb moment came after they saw Jesus crucified, and then he was risen from the dead. It says in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He did it. Jesus said that he was going to rebuild the temple in three days. It was going to be destroyed. He was going to rebuild it in three days, and he did it. The sign that he offered to those Jewish leaders, he actually carried through, and he finished. And when his disciples saw him after he was resurrected, the light bulb went on. There was this aha moment, and they said, oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, he, he is the Savior. He, he, he's alive. He is the new temple. His disciples believed in him. And I think the application for you here, if you're in the room and you're just examining Jesus, you're not quite sure what you think, the the very simple question that you need to ask yourself is, do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe in him? The, The one who is passionately consumed with bringing you and God together. The one who laid his very life down for you in your place. Jesus, the one who predicted his own death and resurrection, and he actually pulled it off. 
Jesus is alive today and he's asking, will you trust me? Will you believe in me as your connection to God so you can live the way that you were really created in a relationship, a worshiping relationship with God? If you're already following Jesus, I, I think a, a great question for you to ask is, as you examine your heart, as you look at what's going on inside your heart, does it look more uh, like a center for worship where God is being worshipped, or does it look more like a busy marketplace where there's a lot of chaos and, and it's there for, for your own personal gain? I think it's a great question, a self-examination question to ask. Now, I will say this. If you're feeling uh, like, like your heart is not in a good place right now, but you're a follower of Jesus, there is good news because Jesus went to the cross to pay for the very fin- sins that you might f- be feeling guilt or shame about this morning. And so those are gone. You have been cleansed. Your, your Father and your Savior, they love you, but they love you enough to let that passionate zeal not leave you where you're at, but to, but to pull you in closer. To, live, to help you live a more worshipful life. Our hearts are prone to wander, but Jesus is calling all of us to repent this morning and to turn back to him. For uh, my wife and I, we realized that, that we've had a little heart issue over the last uh, couple years. Um, as uh, God has started this church planting process, God has convicted us of our relative prayerlessness over the last uh, few years. And, and the reality is I could get up on stage and preach about prayer, and I could lead a, a small group discussion about, about prayer, but I wasn't really practicing it. And I think Jesus' passion, his all-consuming passion for connecting people with God is actually pulling us in to plant City Light Exarbon, not only for the people of Exarbon, but also for our hearts. Because as we've been going through this process, we're forced to ask tough questions like, okay, wait, where, where is the money going to come from? And, and where, where are the people going to come from? Like, these are real questions. And maybe the most frustrating, taxing thing so far is, where is a building going to come from? How, how, how are we going to find a place uh, to worship? Now, it seems like over the last four months that we have emailed and called, I mean, hundreds maybe, hundreds of people to try to find this building. And we've gone in two or dozens of buildings, and door after door is just closing, closing, closing. We have not found a place that, that we're going to call home yet. And from an earthly perspective, that seems like just wasted energy. Like, we have nothing to show for it. But you know what? From a heavenly perspective... This has driven us to our knees in prayer. We're crying out, begging for our Father to to show us what He has for us. And it's connecting our hearts with the very heart of God. It's part of Jesus' single-minded mission to bring us to worship Him. He wouldn't leave me in my hypocrisy of just preaching about prayer. He wanted me to actually do it. You know what? See, like, Jesus is still consumed with zeal for our hearts, for each and every one of us. Do you know that his heart is not consumed with passion for the test that you're going to be taking next week? Or for the new house that you just bought? Or your new car? Or for the score of the Super Bowl later today? He's not consumed with zeal for for your next workout routine or the whole 30 that you just started. He's consumed with zeal that your very heart would be connected with the heart of his loving father who loves you and has created you. That's his goal. That's his mission. And so to align our hearts 
more fully to worship him more wholeheartedly this morning, uh, we want to observe communion. And at communion, we, when we observe communion, when we take it, we remember the extremely high, high price that Jesus paid so that we could worship and enjoy God. You see, the reality is, is that, that his temple, his body, was literally destroyed. His body was broken. His blood was shed to pay the penalty for our sins. But on the third day, he rose again. He rose to new life, and now he rules and reigns in heaven. And one day, he is coming back for us all, and that will be a glorious day. But for right now, he has given us this communion meal to share together, to remember what he has done, to celebrate the fact that we have a new temple that we can worship at. So we eat the bread as we remember his body that was broken for us. We drink uh, the juice as a remembrance of the blood that he shed for us. And we do this with thankful hearts because we don't deserve any of it, but he did it anyway with angry, ferocious passion to get us connected with him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion in a few minutes. I'm going to pray, and there are going to be um, people, communion stations around the room, um, communion servers. Uh, you can go ahead and, and, and find a place. There's going to be stations in the front and the back, and there's even a gluten-free station in the back if you would need that. And so I want to encourage you, uh, if there's something in your heart that you feel like you need to confess to repent of, do that. And let, let God do a new work in your heart. And then there's also going to be people in the back who are willing to pray with you. They've got lanyards on. Our prayer team would love to pray for anything that's going on in your life right now. But let's, as I pray and as the band comes up, let's just shift our hearts to a place where we uh, just have this extreme thankfulness for what Jesus has done. Let's worship as we take communion. God, thank you uh, for this act of communion. Thank you that you've given us something to remember you by. Thank you uh, that you have fought for us with this ferocious, angry passion. And that is the very thing that consumed you to the point where we could be reconnected with you. Without your mission, we are done. We can't be standing here. We can't be sitting here celebrating today. So God, move our hearts to a place of thankfulness, a place of of gratitude for your wonderful, amazing act that has created a new temple that we can go to worship at. God, we want to worship you as we take communion and we sing together. God, be the focus of our attention. In Jesus' name, amen.